Okay, guys, we are, we're in lesson 26. We're going to talk about the call to mission, and that's from Acts chapter 13. We're all the way up to Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 12. Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 12. So why don't, why don't we read this? Let's look at verse 1. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Minion, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And they ministered to the Lord and fasted. And the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work for which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there to Cyprus. And when they had arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. And when they had gone through the island to Palpus, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. And this man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Alamus, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them seeking to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O oh, full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? Now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. All right, so let's talk about the call to mission. First of all, the called. First thing the writer is doing here, Luke is doing, he's going to list for us the teachers. The writer states that there were certain teachers and prophets in the church at Antioch. Certain teachers in the church at Antioch. Now, let me just go ahead and make a point to you. We have a tendency to think that there's only one teacher that should be in a church, and that's the pastor. And I'm going to be very honest with you. Yes, the pastor is a teacher, but he's not supposed to be the only teacher. When you have elders in a church which are the overseers, the spiritual overseers of the church, you're supposed to have many teachers. Do you understand what I'm saying? You can't just rely on one person. You have to have more than one person. So the first thing you see about the church at Antioch is that they are specifically mentioning four teachers in this church. Four teachers. Now, can anybody tell me why it's good to have a multitude of teachers. Why is it good for the church to have a multitude of teachers? Not just one guy. 
Why is it good to have a multitude of teachers? Anybody? Think about it for a moment. What does it do? Rob? Okay, so it allows the church to recognize that what they're hearing is from God through a multitude. Okay, all right, that's good. Anybody want to add to that? Maybe you've got a different thought. A different perspective. Okay, so there's a different perspective. Okay, that's good. Anybody else? Okay. Their giftedness, maybe, yeah. Okay. Yeah, everybody, yeah, so you might have a different, and so Lori's saying you might have one guy, his emphasis is, let's say, evangelism. So all he talks about is evangelism, but the other teacher may emphasize another area. Do you know what I'm saying? Have you ever seen that? How many of you have ever been with a preacher where all he talked about was one topic all the time, every message? Yeah, after a while that kind of gets old, doesn't it? Do you know what I'm saying? That kind of gets old, and especially if it's evangelism. Every message is evangelism. I remember sitting in a church where every week it was politics. And, and I, would, I remember as a young man, being in my 20, early 20s, saying, so at some point are we going to talk about what it means to live the Christian life? Do, do, do you know what I'm saying? So you know, do, do, do you know what I'm saying? So if you have a multitude of teachers, you guard against that. Anybody else? There's another good reason why. Okay, different people resonate with other people. Okay, that's good. But there's another good reason. Nobody's hit on it yet. Okay, in what sense, Brad? In the sense that there's not going to be a false teacher. Okay. Did you hear what he said? Accountability. Because if you have one teacher only, that guy could go wrong. Do you understand? And you wouldn't know it. The reason why you have a plurality of leaders is to constantly keep in check each other's teaching. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because if you've got one guy and he's it, he could lead you astray, subtly. In fact, that's what the warning of the New Testament is when they talk about false teachers. Their message isn't an outright wrong, it's that they subtly pervert the gospel. Do you understand what I'm saying? They subtly pervert teaching. And before you know it, you're... you're, your hook, line, and sinker buying into what he's saying. Did you understand what I'm saying? So, so there's a multitude of teachers. So there, so there were certain teachers and prophets in the church. So I think that's pretty good for us to recognize. And thankfully here at our church, yeah, I'm the main guy speaking every week, but we do have other teachers. We do have other adult teachers, and it needs to be that way. Now, one of the teachers is noted as having grown up with Herod the Tetrarch. Now, isn't that amazing? Luke wants to make us aware that one of the teachers was actually a boyhood friend of the king of Judea. Do you understand what I'm saying? Of the king of Judea. And just so you know who Herod the Tetrarch is, Herod the Tetrarch is the guy who had John the Baptist beheaded. And when he examined Jesus, he wanted Jesus to do some miracles for him and then had him beaten and sent back to Pontius Pilate. So he's not necessarily a good guy. In fact, there's a whole lot more about Herod. Herod took his brother's wife to be his own. So, I mean, it's, it was, it's not a good history and not a good thing, but, 
But what I want you to see here is, is that they're going to make note that the gospel has even reached into the inner circle of even the royalty at that time. Do you understand? Because not, not this guy who was the friend of Herod the Tetrarch, I can already tell you right now, he's not just a slave. He would have been in the social circle of the king. Do you understand what I'm saying? So now let's talk about the Spirit's direction here. The Holy Spirit directed the church to separate Barnabas and Saul for his special what? Work. The Holy Spirit directed the church to separate Barnabas and Saul for his special work. Now, all right, this is obvious when you read the passage. Look with me at verse 2. Where did this take place? Look at verse 2. Where, where did, oh, not just Antioch, but where in Antioch? What specific time did this take place? It's very obvious, so don't look for like some, like, boy, George is really pressing me here. Where, where would this have occurred? It's an obvious answer. Church, church but specifically when at church? You got it, John, during prayer meeting. Okay, so let me just stop for a moment. You know, we try to emphasize to you prayer, and we're re-emphasizing that among the leadership here at our church. And now, let me just go ahead and tell you this. Why do we have prayer meeting? Can you tell me why we have prayer meeting? Why do we have times of prayer? Obvious answers, so don't, don't worry. I'm, not, I'm just wanting to hear what you're thinking. Why do we have prayer? Why do we have prayer times at church? Why? Okay, come together and pray. Okay, anybody want to expand to it? Why do we have prayer? Oh, go ahead. Okay, so we're trying to connect with God. Okay, that's good, Gene. What were you saying, Brad? Make each other aware of needs. Okay, make each other aware of needs. Anybody else? Yeah, Lori? Okay, praying together builds unity. Brian? Okay, we're called to do that. Okay, all right, now... I'm going to add, every one of you gave an, a, a good, correct answer. Now I'm going to add one more to your list. Because nobody here probably even thinks about it, but the passage brings it out. The reason why we pray is not just to go to God with our needs, not just to build unity, not just to pray for each other. The reason why we go in prayer is so that he speaks to us as a church. You understand what I'm saying? Because this passage talks about they were in prayer and the Holy Spirit said, I want you to separate Barnabas and Saul because I got something for them to do. Do you you understand what I'm saying? Prayer is not just going to God and telling him your needs. Prayer is you also meeting with God and being open to him telling you to do something. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, for instance, guys, you know, with the leader, when we have prayer time, I'll just be honest with you, uh, I'm hoping it will be different than this, but when we have our prayer breakfast and when we have prayer time here at the church, it's the men. What do you mean the men? The leaders of the church. Just, isn't that guys who've been there? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. It's just the leaders of the church that go show up. It shouldn't be that way. All of us should be coming to prayer, not just to lift up our needs, because that's what a lot of us think prayer is, is just filling up the calendar with whoever's got a problem. No. 
It's connecting with God and telling him our needs, which he already says he knows of before we pray. Isn't that interesting? So the emphasis in prayer isn't just telling him stuff. But the emphasis is, God, we're your church. We're ministering here in Clearfield County. What do you want us to do? What do you want to show us? Who do you want us to minister to? Who do you, do you understand what I'm saying? It allows the spirit to give guidance to our church. I think, you know, as I'm reading this, and as I've been studying this, I'm realizing this is one more reason why we need to pray. Not just to pray for each other, but that, so that God can tell us what to do. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? So that we're sensitive to the Holy Spirit to tell us what to do. Do you, do you know what I mean? To tell us what to do. And, and then we need to respond to that. We need to respond to that, you know? Do you, do you understand? Prayer is more than just you talking at God. It should be communing with him so that he tells you something. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? So that he talks to you. So let's go on. So after fasting and praying, so notice it came out of the prayer meeting. So what do they do? Fast and pray some more. The church commissioned Barnabas and Saul and sent them out. The church commissioned Barnabas and Saul and sent them out. Now how they sent them out, it says that they laid hands on them. Now let me, explain, let me ask you this. Some of you have been around church a long time. What does that mean, laying hands on them? Did they lay hands on them and throw them out the door? I mean... Is that what it means? What does it mean to lay hands on someone? Okay, they prayed for him, and we symbolically lay hands on people. What else does it mean? Anybody else got a thought? Tell us, George. We've only got so much time. Okay, here it is. has many implications in the Old and New Testament. First of all, in the Old Testament, it was used as a symbol in three ways. First, it symbolized the parental bestowal of inheritance rights. So in the Old Testament, you would often see a dad laying hands on his children to bestow a blessing on them, okay? You see that there, all right? Second, it symbolized the bestowal of gifts and the right of an office, which is what we do when we lay hands on somebody who's being ordained, okay? And thirdly, it symbolized a substitution in three areas, an animal for one's guilt, Levi's for the firstborn of the other tribe, and one's innocence for another guilt. Now, in the New Testament, it's symbolized in four ways. It symbolizes the bestowal of blessings. We see that in Matthew. Second, it symbolizes the restoration of health. Call forth the elders, James chapter 5, and what? Lay hands, pray it, okay? Then, also... Uh, let's see, the third one, it symbolizes the reception of the Holy Spirit in baptism. We've seen that in Acts, that they were laid hands on and they received the Holy Spirit. But then fourth, it symbolizes the bestowal of gifts and the right of office. So they're being symbolized here as being sent out from the church as missionaries. Do you understand? That's what's going on here. Now, let's talk about, so here's what we're going to see. Barnabas and Saul's trip is known as Paul's first missionary journey. This is what's known as Paul's first missionary journey. And they head, first of all, to Cyprus. 
So from Antioch, they traveled to the port of Seleucia and sailed to Cyprus. Now, I think it's interesting why they chose to go to Cyprus. The reason why I think they chose to go to Cyprus is because one of them was from Cyprus, and that was Barnabas. Barnabas was originally from the island of Cyprus. He was from Salamis. So the first place they go when they go to Cyprus is where? Salamis. So it's kind of like his hometown. Do you understand? So the first place they go is somewhere where Paul may not have been there. He may have. He may not have. But the first place they go is somewhere where one of them knows pretty well, and that's Barnabas. Okay? Barnabas. Now, when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the gospel in the Jewish synagogues. First place they went to when they arrived in Salamis, and this is going to be Paul's pattern of ministry throughout the rest of his life. When he showed up somewhere, he would always go first to the synagogues. Why? It's kind of like what Jesus said, to the Jews first. He would go to the Jews first and proclaim the gospel among the Jews. So when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the gospel in the Jewish synagogues. Now, John Mark accompanied Barnabas and Saul as their assistant. Barnabas and Saul had an assistant, John Mark, okay? So like when they're preaching, they're heavy into it. Hey, John, go to the sheets, get me a, get me a, a, you know, a latte or something. You know, you kind of, that's what we're talking about here, a, 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 an assistant. Now, they go from Salamis to somewhere else now on the island, and that's Palphus. So they went to Palphus. When they went to Palphus, Paphos, they found a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet. Now, first of all, Paphos is probably the capital of the province of Cyprus, okay? Probably the capital because that's where the proconsul was. And they go there and uh, they find a Jewish false prophet or a sorcerer. So he's a false prophet. He's involved in sorcery. The sorcerer was called Alamus. He has two names here, possibly. Alamus, which means sorcerer, or Bar-Jesus, meaning Bar means in the Hebrew son, son of Jesus. Okay? Now, just so you don't get confused, the Jesus here is not the Jesus you know. Okay? So don't think, oh, this guy says he's the son of Jesus. No, He's the son of a Jesus, but it's not the Jesus, okay? Here's the thing. Jesus was a very common name during the time of Christ. There were a lot of people named Jesus, just like there's a lot of people named Rob. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Just like there's a lot of people named Denny, just like there's a lot of people named Bruce. It's a common name, okay? It's become less common over time, because we've, we have attached a great significance to the name Jesus, just like you don't see anybody called today Judas. In Jesus' day, there were a lot of people whose names were Judas. Now, nobody calls anybody Judas simply because of the connotation of the name. Do you understand? So this is a guy who is 
They call him Alamus or they call him Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus, all right? But it's not the Jesus, all right? Now, the sorcerer was the attendant or the counselor to the Roman proconsul. So he's the attendant or a counselor to the Roman proconsul. Now, what's a proconsul, George? Well, a proconsul was a Roman official who served kind of as an overseer or the governor of a Roman province, okay? He was from a very high family in the Roman society, and he kind of oversaw the military a little bit, but a proconsul only served in the office for one year, okay? So they were constantly changing who it was. So during the time that Paul, Saul, and, and Barnabas come here, the proconsul is Sergio Paulus, a Roman, and he's, been, he's serving his year, and he has a counselor who is uh, this Alamus, this false prophet. Now, the scripture tells us that the proconsul was named Sergio Paulus, and he was an intelligent man. Sergio Paulus, and he was an intelligent man. Now, there, history doesn't tell us much about Sergio Paulus. We, we know from historical record that there was a guy by the name of Sergio Paulus. We also know that he was from the Equestrian Order, which is one of these high society orders of Roman society, and we know that he served as a proconsul. We don't know anything more about him. Okay, We don't know anything more about him at all. But here he is. He is the proconsul, and he's an intelligent man. Now, here's what he does. He called for Barnabas and Saul to appear before him so that he could hear the word. Word's gotten out that these two guys, Barnabas and Saul, are proclaiming something throughout the society, and it's probably causing a stir. People are believing it. People are, are reacting to it, to it. And so the council, the governor, says, well, I want to hear what's going on. I want to hear what this guy, these guys are saying. So he call, tells them to come and appear before him and communicate what they're saying. Now, verse 8 tells us that when they do this, remember, Alamus is a what? Is he a Gentile? He's a Jew, okay? So is he oppo- he's probably opposed to the gospel message, okay? So Alamus, the sorcerer, opposed their message as he sought to keep the proconsul from the faith. So Alamus, this, this sorcerer, decides, I'm going to do everything I can to keep the proconsul from believing what these guys are saying, okay? Believing what these guys are saying. Now, verses eight through, 9 through 11, to me, are pretty scary verses and tell you the power of apostles, okay? Now, why am I saying that? Because today, in the United States, we have some guys who want to say that they're apostles, or that they can bestow the office of apostleship on people. Usually in Pentecostal circles, this is taking place. It's not taking place in Presbyterian or Baptist circles or even non-denominational circles. It's typically taking place in Pentecostal circles where they believe that all gifts are for today. Well, I believe that all gifts are necessarily for today, but there are some gifts that are no longer here, and one of the gifts I would say that's no longer here is apostleship. Why? Because an apostle was somebody who saw the resurrected Jesus. 
and who had been with Jesus from the beginning of their ministry. And I don't know too many 2,000-year-old dudes walking around who'd been with Jesus. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? So, but this is scary because when you look at what these guys could do, I don't know anybody else like this. Okay, what do you mean? Here's what I'm saying. First of all, this is the first place that Saul is now referred to. This is the first place that Saul is now referred to as being called Paul. This is the first place that he's now referred to as being called Paul. Now, why is that possible? Well, he's going into the Gentile world. Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul is his Greek-Roman name. Do you understand? Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul is his Greek-Roman name. Now, being filled with the Holy Spirit, Paul looked at, the whole, looked at the sorcerer with indignation. So probably as they're sharing, this guy's opposing. You ever had somebody interject when you're trying to talk, and he's, a, he's probably trying to discount everything you're saying when you're trying to talk to the governor? Paul, being filled with the Holy Spirit, looks at this guy, and he's mad. He's filled with indignation. And he called the son, <laughs> this is, you could tell that Paul's not kind here. He called the sorcerer the son of the devil who perverted the ways of the Lord. Now, is that a kind statement? Is that being very nice? No, no, he, he called him a son of the devil who perverted the ways of the Lord. Now, here's what I think is horrifying, but this is what they could do. Paul stated that Alamus would be struck blind for a period of time. He just proclaimed the word and the guy was struck blind. Now this is the second time that we've seen something like this. What do you mean? First time, remember Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit and uh, Peter says, you're going to die. They're going to pick up your body, he says to Sapphira, and bury you with your husband. That, if if, some, if if there were leaders like that today in a church, do you think we would be pretty freaked out and scared? You know, do you know what I'm saying? Think about counseling, what counseling would be like if a guy could have that. You're blind, come back and talk to me in three days. Do you know what I'm saying? It's, 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 it's horrifying, but they had that ability. And so verse 11 tells us, look at verse 11, immediately... Alamus's eyesight drifted into darkness and he needed others to guide him. Now, we don't know anything more after this. History does not tell us anything more about this guy or about what happened. All I know is, is that Paul said, you son of a devil, you're perverting the ways of the Lord. You are hindering the gospel. God's going to strike you blind. He's struck blind. He has to be led around by the hand. And we don't know anything more. We don't know if he got his eyesight back, although the text tells us it was only for a period of time. This is amazing, isn't it? Now, what I find amazing is this, is verse 12. The proconsul believed. Why? Because of the blindness of Alamus and their teaching. Notice two things here. Not just because he saw the power of God striking this counselor of his blind, but because of the teaching. So let me just stop. Here's a good point for you and I to recognize. <clears throat> I hear people all the time saying, well, if we could find Noah's Ark, and there are people trying to find Noah's Ark, 
for, for 20 or 30 years now, there's been people trying to find Noah's Ark. If we could find Noah's Ark, then people will believe. No, because it's more than just some kind of super spectacular thing that's going to convince people about Jesus. They need to know about Jesus. There needs to be the proclamation of what? The gospel. Do you understand what I'm saying? There needs to be the proclamation of the gospel. Not just some super spectacular thing happening. And why do you say that, George? Well, think about it. The Jews had Jesus for three years of ministry, and did he do some super spectacular things? And he had a lot of people follow him, right? But they ultimately, what? Rejected him. So it's not just the super spectacular that convinces you. It's the gospel. So, it, and so the text is making it clear. He believed because of what he saw, but he also believed because of their what? Teaching. Okay? Their teaching. Now, next week, we're done, we're done with this lesson. Next week, we're going to talk about as they move from Perga to Antioch, a different Antioch, okay? Actually, in the Roman world, there were 13 different Antiochs. So we're going to move to another Antioch next week.